This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for August 29 to September 2. Uh, this week I discovered that there are two boathouses and it blew my mind. And also we got to interview one of my heroes, Margaret Cho. And we talked to the photographer Seamus Murphy about his new book with PJ Harvey, Hollow of the Hand. And we talked to Molly Crabapple about her new book, Drawing Blood. Seamus Murphy is a photographer and filmmaker. He's the author of four books, including the recent collaboration with PJ Harvey, The Hollow of the Hand. He's in town for the Melbourne Writers' Festival, but we're very pleased to welcome him to the Triple R studio. Thanks so much for coming in. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Um, Seamus, you were born in Ireland and you've recently gone back there as a photographer with a, a book about Ireland that you're going to be talking about this Saturday. Most of your early work, though, was set abroad. So maybe you could start off by explaining how you became a photographer and why it was necessary to sort of leave Ireland to start taking those photos. Sure. I mean, I grew up in, in Dublin and uh, 60s, 70s, and by the 80s I was ready to, you know, um, have a career or do whatever. And it was a very bad time. It was it was one of those sort of um, recession periods. A lot of people left. Um, I think at that stage people were going to America rather than Australia. I think now the Irish go to Australia, but then it was America. And I went to America and I spent um, three years in America, came back to London, um, but I, I always wanted to travel because when, as a teenager in Dublin, it was it was a very boring time to be a, to be a teenager, very very boring place to be a teenager. Different now, I think you know, um, mm. it's a much more diverse city, and and um, the country has gone through a huge, you know, turnaround with scandals with the with the religion, you know, the, the the priests and all the rest of it, and and um, a lot of reform has happened. So um, it's a very different place. So in my day, it was it was quite a dull place. So I definitely wanted to travel. Uh, you've done a lot of work in Afghanistan as well as other countries. I, Afghanistan in particular is kind of interesting because I, I guess it's a country that the West often seems purely sees purely and simply in terms of Western priorities, whether that's war or the campaign against the Russians or whatever. As a photographer, how do you get past those preconceptions and show... The country as people in Afghanistan sure. see it. I mean, the reason I went to Afghanistan in the first place was 1994, and it was the, the middle of their re very brutal civil war. My sister had been on the hippie trail in the 70s, and she raved about Af Afghanistan. You know, she'd been to Iran wow. and India and all these other amazing places, but for her it was Afghanistan. So I always had in my head this place. And then because there was a, a friend of mine who was going there as a journalist, um, and I wanted to go, uh, I got an opportunity to go, and it was the first war I'd ever covered, and, and it was incredible. And it had a huge impression on me. I mean, the place itself, the people, the landscape, and then, you know, the war. And that was my first introduction to, to that side of life. Um, and it was it was quite defining, I suppose, in some ways. Your, your photos seem quite distinctly un-news-like. I wouldn't say, that, like, you know, you're like a newsy war photographer. They're very human. And I wonder, having seen places that you've seen over a number of years, how you kind of don't lose your faith in humanity while spending so much time trying to capture it. I, sh you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm always interested in the people in the place. And sorry, I didn't answer your question. Well, yeah, it was the same question, right? The news thing that um, I've always f tried to to follow. You know, the things that interest me and and the pictures I want to take are the ones that I, I end up taking. Um, of course, I've done pictures. For example, this book with with Polly. I mean, I think. 95% of those pictures were never published. You know, they were, they were pictures that were never published because they weren't the sort of pictures that magazines and newspapers wanted yeah. or they had a use for. But I took them anyway and they were the ones that I was, I was kind of most, um, most concentrated on, on getting, you know. And it, it is going beyond the, um, 
the obvious cliche of, of you know, a woman in a burqa. Is that interesting in itself? Mm. You know, would, 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 would an Afghan look at that picture and find it interesting beyond the fact that, that woman is wearing a burqa? Probably not. So there's got to be a little bit more to it. And I've, I've always wanted to find a story within the story, you know, the story behind the story. Um, so, and also, I, I guess it's how you edit your work. You know, you can, you can shoot lots of things. And um, uh, my, my interests are very broad. So I'm never just going to, a, to an event and just photographing the event. It'll be on the way, something will happen. Something, I'll see something happening with a donkey on the side of the road and I'll stop. And, and you know, it's like B-roll is more interesting than, than the main event, I, I always find. How, how did the creative relationship then with PJ work for this book? Because she was, were, were you working together side by side? Were you kind of taking photos and she was writing? And was there any kind of collaboration in the moment? Yeah, or? there was. I mean, a lot of the work I had done even before I'd met her, um, because actually the Kosovo work, I'd done that in the late 90s. And, yeah. and when Polly and I met and she was interested in, in, in the places I'd been to, um, I started showing her the work from Kosovo and we decided we'd probably go there, you know, for this project. And um, so it's not a lot of the work I had, already, I had already done, but then we did travel together to the three places. And when we did that, it was like working with any writer. I mean, she would just wander around taking notes. I would take my photographs. Um, we'd follow our own heads. Um, you know, most of the time we were sort of side by side, but then I'd go off somewhere and she'd, she'd go somewhere else. And um, it, was, it was a typical writer, writer, photographer, you know, gig, which I've done so many times with, with, with journalism. Um, mm. A bit different, though, because she's a poet. And... Um, what I found interesting was that we'd often, at the end of the day, which is usually the case as well with journalists, you talk about what you've seen. And often it's a thing of like, oh, you, did you see that? And the other person hasn't. And, and so you're sharing ideas. We would normally see the same things. You know, did you yeah, see that, right. woman, see that woman carrying the keys? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Did you see the those rotting plums on the, on the, on the ground, which sort of meant that that village really hadn't been lived in because the plums were rotting? Yeah. And she, and, you know... It, she she showed me in her notebooks where she'd actually written that stuff down, and it, it, so it was extraordinary. Yeah, wow. That is amazing that you'd so like on the same wavelength that you both see, you know, the same little details. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it, it surprised me because, um, as I say, often with writers and 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 you know, for you, I, I have the same function for them. In the evenings, you always sort of get together and and. Uh, There'll be something that I've seen that the, that the other person hasn't seen, and, and vice versa. I'll miss something, um, but with with uh, this one, it was it was it was very much in accord, and um, and so when we came to edit the the work and put it together, it was kind of simple. It was more yeah. the it was more the form it would take. Like in the book, we divided it into the three countries. We could have at one stage we were thinking of jumbling it all together, and so you weren't sure where you were, and that would have been nice in some ways. But then in a way, there's enough confusion already with the pictures and the poetry so in a way you sort of help the reader um and then and then confuse them yeah <laughs> you know, with the work itself yeah. did you expect this creative relationship to evolve from where it began because you weren't no, familiar no, with pj's no. work were you when you when she first approached you no, is that right no. yeah. shamefully no. <laughs> no, no 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 i i, I think i'd seen her on, on television i mean i certainly had heard of pj harvey yeah. and you know her persona was very well known but i'd never really heard her music and and um you know how certain things pass you by you know Movies, you know, that you should have seen. Sure, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, I never saw that film. Well, I think Polly was like that. Anyway, um, I didn't, and and uh, and and also when when I got the call from from her manager at the time, I thought, you know, I don't know that much about PJ Harvey, but I can't imagine how my work would fit into what she does. But actually, it's it's worked very well. Mm. And I didn't think it would it would go beyond. You know, I didn't think I was going to make films, for example, because I hadn't really made films before yeah. before that, and I'd just come back from Afghanistan. When I was to do the first uh, little bit of work with her, which was some portraits, um, 
I just come back from Afghanistan having having shot video for pretty much the first time for a film and she said oh you, you should film do you want to shoot some film you know some films for the album too and that's how that letting the shake films happened so it's been a very interesting you know shambolic uh, <laughs> relationship which is great you know I love that and I think I think that suits her too there was a certain amount of controversy about your Washington visit for this project, particularly the song Community of Hope, with some politicians saying that you should have spent more time in the Ward 7 area before commenting. It seems to me, though, that that's kind of inherent in the project in a way. You're going to places as visitors and then commenting on what you see. How did, how did you re- respond to those? I thought it was rubbish. I mean, I really did think it was rubbish. I, I think... Um, I'm not sure if it was the Washington Post or whether it was... Um, um, some other publications were looking for a story. And uh, I don't think those politicians knew who P.J. Harvey was either. <laughs> and they certainly didn't know about the, the, the Hope Six Project, you know, music. So how do they find out about it? I think someone rang up and said, do you know that there's a woman called P.J. Harvey from England? And she wrote these, like, and let me, let me quote you, the, the, and what do you think of that? So they were, they were, they were, they were, they were kind of fishing for comments. Mm. And then you had politicians, I'm guessing, I don't know who these people were, who saw a headline you know, and uh, jumped on it. I, I just think it was very unfair. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think reporters go to places. We're outsiders. That's the point. You know, we say the things that people that live there can't say or don't see. And so um, uh, it was it was rubbish. And, and it was also social media, you know, and, and it was sort of the, to, to be on the other end of that where you see this thing building and, and it's like it's lie upon lie. You know, uh, you're, you're being judged on something which actually isn't true. Um, you know, welcome to the Trump era. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's you just throw some shit at somebody, and you know, it sticks. Mm. I'm wondering, in your, in all of your time, um, in all of the work that you've done, is there been one particular country or moment that's kind of affected you personally the most? I think I have to say Afghanistan. Yeah, because that was the first time I, I witnessed that kind of that kind of stuff. Um, having said that, yeah, Afghanistan for sure. But having said that, I think it's for all of us. It's the same thing. Whatever's closest to home and your own family and people that are close to you, if things happen, I think that's always going to be far more traumatic. Yeah. Um, but in terms of something that really you know has changed my life, I think going to Afghanistan in 1994 was what did it. Speaking about um, home on Saturday, you're speaking about imagining Ireland. You're obviously from Ireland originally. Tell us about the process of going back to to take photos of the country in which you were born. I would imagine Ireland too is another place where there's so many layers of mythology about that country and so many visual cliches that you have to get past as a photographer so you don't end up with, yeah. I don't know, crumbling walls mm. and I got those with straw hats. I got those. <laughs> <laughs> you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. It's like, you know, go to Ireland and don't photograph people in a pub. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. But I know exactly what you mean and... and um, I was very conscious as well when I, not only just taking the photographs, but also in the editing that, you know, that we, we balance things out a bit. There's one red-haired kid that everyone loves. Um, <laughs> in fact, I, you know, to me, it, to me there, there was, the, the picture was more about the fact that he was a traveller kid, you know, and, and, um, and that to me was more obvious. But, you know, it, it's, 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 it's impossible to, to avoid the cliches. You've got to embrace them in a way and make fun, make fun of them. Um, and cliches, you know, they come from somewhere. There is some truth to them. So try and get beyond them and uh, use them. Yeah, but it, it was great. I mean, it was great. Actually, I say that. It's great now that it was done. <laughs> hardest, hardest thing I ever did. Hardest thing I ever did. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's like going back and being a kid again, you know, and feeling that, ooh, I want to kind of take a photograph here. That that person, that adult may, you know, may, may object. It was like going back and being a child. And, yeah, and, right. Because I left when I was, you know, well, I wasn't a child, but I was, you know, very early 20s. And it was like I'd stepped back, you know, in time. And... Um, 
um, you know, you were, I was definitely more self-conscious. But then on, on another level, I was seeing things that an outsider wouldn't see. Mm. And so, you know, there's a lot of arguments back and forth, whether being an outsider at times is better or being somebody who lives there. Some photographers never leave or never, never work beyond where they live. And I mean, I, I mean you know, I, I admire that a lot because I think that's very really hard. Um, so, but you do, I suppose, know when certain things happen, you know, you know, the, rhythm, the rhythms of a city. Um, so there was a mixture of both. I was an outsider, but I was still, I was still enough of an insider that, that you know, it, at times I had to push myself to go beyond what I thought was banal. Yeah, right. The book is entitled The Hollow of the Hand. It's by our guest Seamus Murphy alongside PJ Harvey. They're speaking tonight at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Seamus is also speaking this Saturday at the Writers' Festival at an event called Imagining Island. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Thanks for very much. battling Thank through you. that jet lag. You've done oh, yeah. very well. Yes. <laughs> you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Molly Crabapple is a writer, artist and activist. She's the author of the new memoir, Drawing Blood, and she's appearing tonight at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. But right now she's joining us in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming. This book is a memoir in part about your development as an artist, but it's also a beautiful piece of art in its own right, in which the story of your life is illustrated with your drawing. So I wonder if we could start by getting you to tell us about how you went about writing it. Did you keep the art from your life or did you retrospectively illustrate the book as you were writing it? Some of the pieces are things that I did at the time. I, I certainly looked through like my old sketchbooks that I made while I was wandering around Europe, scanned a few pages. But mostly what I did was after I went through the brutal process of actually you know, creating the manuscript, I made it this master list of every single thing that I thought would be cool and would be fun or would look interesting to illustrate. And I hung it on my wall. And then every single day I would draw something off of it and I would cross it off. I would cross it off. And eventually I had about a hundred illustrations. Wow. wow. Yeah, right. Which was more, which was harder, the writing or the, or the, the art? Writing, no question. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been drawing since I was a little kid and I like probably at some point in this interview if we went on long enough, I would be having my notebook and I would be drawing you right now. It's it's totally natural to me. I'd be okay with that if you wanted to do that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but like writing is, is so hard to me. It's I've only been doing writing for four years. It never ceases to be brutal for me. And you know, when you do a book, it's so much more intense and so much more difficult than to do essays. And when you do a memoir, it has this thing about it where it's like you're taking out your guts, right? And you're spreading them out in a pretty little pattern and then you're saying, Hey everyone, look at my beautiful guts. Aren't they lovely? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like eviscerating yourself. So no question. The, the writing was the brutal part. The drawing was the happily frosting and arranging things. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess like given that you did pull your guts out and, and put them in the book, uh, your life has been quite phenomenal, like, you know, kind of reading about it. I go, oh my God, how are you not 100 years old? You seem to have packed <laughs> so much in. Was there any moment where you thought there's an organ I don't want to pull out here? I just want to tuck that one away and not talk about it. Or are you, do you, are you at a point where you feel really comfortable discussing everything? So I had a few lines. One thing was I didn't talk in depth about my relationship with my partner because I would like to continue having a relationship with my partner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we other, had that rule here yeah. as well on air. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's if you would like to continue having your happy relationship, you don't break down your fights for public consumption. Totally. Uh, the other thing was I actually spent a lot of time thinking about what was ethical to reveal about other people. Because if I'm going to reveal things about myself, that's mine. That Those are my flaws. Those are my failings. But it's quite another thing to say... Hey friend, remember that 
drunken conversation we had where you were really vulnerable 15 years ago, that's now in your top Google results without your permission. Yeah. So I actually spent a lot of time checking with people and making sure that that it was okay with them or else disguising their identities. Mm. Well, let's talk about some of the episodes in, in the book. You, you're from New York, but you spend a lot of time talking about um, travelling in your early life. I was particularly struck by your descriptions of going to Paris and living in the legendary bookshop Shakespeare and Co. I must admit, I always thought that was something that people did in the 1950s. I had no idea that it was still possible to actually live in that, you know, iconic kind of place. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Shakespeare and Company... It was more than just a bookshop to me. It was the school that I learned how to live. It was the place that I learned the possibilities for art and for radical generosity and for just making making things that are supposed to be fantastical true as long as you have enough rigor about yourself. The, that combination of dreaming big and then being intensely, grindingly practical to get there. Shakespeare and Company is a bookstore that has been around since the 1950s. It was founded by this itinerant ex-veteran named George Whitman. And it was the most magical place I had ever been in. You could work like an hour a day and read a book a day. In exchange for that, you could sleep on these little bunks that were amidst all the books. There were violinists, there were dissidents, there were old academics, there were ballerinas. There were just the usual sort of flotsam of young people, right? Traveling around Europe, trying to figure out who they were. And I was 17 years old and I was this really, really awkward kid. It was really hard for me to speak to people. But the way I got in there was I I wanted to see the place and I got there and it wasn't open yet. So I just sat out front sketching. Yeah, wow. And then this old, old guy comes up. He's like ancient, you know, almost like sculpturally old in this old stained smoking jacket. And he looks at it and... He says, there is no miracle greater than to be a young girl in Paris in the spring. Oh, get out. No. Yep. And it was George Whitman. Oh, my God. And it was the owner, and he invited me to live there. And I I spoke to some people, and I I did. And I kept coming back to there. It was like my my place, my home. It was a place where anything was possible. Oh, that's so romantic, isn't it? It's like something that you dream up happening yeah. as, a, as a teenager, I suppose. Wow. Uh, the book kind of traces this circuitous route. I mean, you start off talking about yourself as someone who's always interested in politics and art, and then you become absorbed in the burlesque world for a long time and then re-emerge as a political artist. Was there ever a time when you thought you might have to give up on art, that these dreams that you had might never come to fruition and you, you might have to just give it all away? I didn't know what else I would do. Sometimes I, I get asked, people are like, why didn't you sell out? What gave you the courage? And I'm like, no, man, it wasn't courage. I, I'm not capable of anything else. It was art or selling parts of my kidney for quick money. I don't know what else I would do. I, I, I suppose I had the advantage. My, my mom is an amazing illustrator. And because of that, I was like, oh, illustration, drawing pictures is how you make a middle-class living and feed your kids. It's an utterly prosaic thing. It's like being a carpenter and... That's what I would turn to if I needed to make quick money. And the way I came up as an artist, it wasn't like I was someone who was you know, swept off my feet when I was you know, 20 by a gallery. No, I, I drew pe- pictures of people's pets. that, And I got those gigs by hanging up flyers in the deli. I, I drew pictures of people's Dungeons and Dragons characters uh, from gigs that I got with flyers in the comic store. I always saw art as like, this is, this is my fallback plan. There is no other fallback plan but this. When you talk about your experience in, in the burlesque world, it's kind of with positive and negatives. How do you feel about it now? I wish that 
I wish that I, I had put a little bit more energy into my costuming when I knew I was going to be filmed because the internet is forever. <laughs> brush your wig. Brush your wig before you go on stage, young women. Brush your wig. <laughs> I feel like this is life advice for everyone. Exactly. Don't overdraw your lip liner. You might think it looks good now, but in 10 years, you don't know the regrets it's going to give you. And you end up on one of those BuzzFeed lists. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, I don't regret any naked photos, but I certainly regret some lip liner photos. <laughs> <laughs> they haunt me to this day. <laughs> How can you regret anything in your past? I... I I spent a lot of time in the burlesque world and I also spent a lot of time as a naked model and I, I feel very uh, motivated to draw a distinction and it's not because I think one is classy and one is not, that's dumb. It's because I, I never made much money from burlesque. I, I barely made any money from burlesque. So it was something that I did because I loved it. Yeah. Whereas uh, when I worked as a model, I made a hundred bucks an hour at 19, which is a lot of money for me then. And I generally hated it because I, I, I it's, I don't know, it's just, posing for not particularly creative and rather socially awkward uh, wealthy dentists. I get well. Well, I enacted their, their not particularly interesting ideas about sexy amateur photography. Uh, so I did both of those things, and I, I love burlesque for what it taught me about you know, costuming and performers and the amazing um, men and women that I met doing it. And I, I like modeling, too, what it gave me in terms of just teaching you like how to be tough and how to negotiate and stand up for yourself and uh, how to realize that uh, your value, it's not in, about you know, guarding some little like white girl innocence about yourself that um, it's not something that can, you know, be taken away because someone's seen you naked. Uh, and I also, it gave me the money to start my art career. Yeah. You um, write in the book, you were heavily involved and uh, in Occupy Wall Street, providing art for the movement. Occupy was a great source of hope for people all around the world for a brief period of time. It seems to have collapsed as quickly as it erupted. What, um, what legacy do you, do you think it's left behind? A number of legacies. For one thing, Occupy in America gave an entire generation of middle-class white kids the experience of being arrested or of seeing their friends beaten up by the cops. It taught people how to do civil disobedience. It taught people how to do jail support. It gave the infrastructure of a certain type of protest. And even if Occupy itself was crushed, that infrastructure and those skills and those networks still remain. And I think that those have been very influential in a lot of a lot of other types of organizing and a lot of other types of movements. I also think that certain types of political candidates would have been impossible without Occupy. I mean, the fact that Bernie Sanders, you know, almost won the Democratic National Convention, that he came close to that, I, I think is a testament to how much Occupy changed uh, the discourse in America. I also think Occupy taught people in some ways what they don't want. One of the problems with it in New York was that because it was a a leaders-less uh, consensus-based model. This led to long meetings that were dominated by the people with the most free time and stubbornness. <laughs> and I think that other uh, other types of organizing have uh, steered clear of this and gone into different different ways of like having leaders and having accountability. I have so much admiration for the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm so happy that uh, Aliza Garza is going to be speaking at the Sydney Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And in some ways, I think that they've really avoided a lot of the worst pitfalls of Occupy like, and like, just mad admiration. Yeah. You spent some time in Guantanamo Bay um, reporting and, and drawing there. How has that 
how do, how do you look on that time now? Has that affected you as a person having been there and seen that? Because not many of us have. We hear a lot about it. Guantanamo Bay is the, the most Americanly evil place I've ever been. Like there are all sorts of evil places in the world, but that is specifically Americanly evil. Yeah, wow. It's it's a place where over I want to say around eight hundred men, eight hundred Muslim men have gone through. Only uh, seven of them have ever been convicted of any crime whatsoever, and those are in very very dubious dubious trials. Um, some of those verdicts have been overturned. You know, most of those men, uh, if not all, have been tortured, held sometimes, some of them for like 14 years away from their family for, for nothing. And yet it's also a place that has a uh, karaoke bar and a gift shop that sells T-shirts that say Guantanamo Bay Little Princess on them. Wow. No way. Be- wow. Because it, it's because it's America and they want to be, it's just an ordinary naval base. America smiles that there's this that's re- incredible yeah this real like refusal to grapple with uh what they have done and what they've continued to do there guantanamo was the first sort of like big uh, journalistic piece that i did and it's a place where truth is a very uh hard thing for a journalist to approach because everything is censored when you go down there you're on a potemkin tour even on that tour what you can photograph is really really limited and then Every single person who will speak to you about Guantanamo is self-interested. The military lawyers will speak to you and they'll just tell you, like, just shameless lies. Mm. The defense attorneys for the detainees, who I found to be truthful, but they're attorneys. And so they have an interest in having their client released. There are former detainees. There are guards who are whistleblowers. But everyone is motivated to obfuscate in one way or another. And you can't see what's actually going on yourself. And so you find yourself kind of groping towards truth through this like sea of like leaked transcripts that are in themselves false and these self-interested testimonies and what you are seeing with your own eyes, but which might just be a show for you. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Uh, Since then you've been, as you mentioned, you've been doing um, quite a bit of journalistic um, writing, but you always, or you mostly accompany the writing with the art as well. I was kind of thinking about, it's almost like a revival of almost like 19th century journalism where, you know, before people had access to cameras, they would do art as well. I mean, do you you feel that you're sort of striking out a new kind of journalism with that? I feel really lucky to get to revive that sort of tradition. There have always been spaces for artists as documentarians. For instance, there is this amazing uh, Indian artist named Chira Prasad, who during the Bengal famine, he toured uh, the Bengal. And as we know, the Bengal famine was a man-made famine by the British and killed millions of people. And he did these drawings from life of the human devastation that that it cost. And these pictures were so powerful and they were so real and they were so visceral and they, they weren't propaganda. They were just real, their art as being real, that the British actually hunted down and burnt his books that he had made of this because they thought they were damaging to the war effort. I think of people like Goya and his disasters of war or mm. Otto Dix's you know, paintings, both of Weimar Berlin, but also of, you know the trenches. I think that there's something about artists in general where we just want to take our sketch pad, right? And we want to use it as an excuse to look. But that that's with the invention of the camera and with the ubiquitousness of the camera that got really marginalized from journalism. And so I'm really happy that I get to help bring that back. The book is Drawing Blood and uh, Molly speaking, appearing tonight at the Melbourne Writers' Festival at 8.30. Thank you so much for coming to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me.
so guys, last week I, I started taking my dogs, Harry and Lloyd, to a, a dog park at just an off-lead dog park at Yarrabend yep. Park. It's oh my gosh! I wish I had discovered this ages ago. Like, is it, normally when I take my dogs to a I'll just take them, you know, around the streets and stuff. Sure. Take them to a dog park. Oh my god! It's off-lead. Just let them go. go, and they get to meet other dogs and stuff. And it's just oh, it's so, and it's beautiful. Mm. Just go walk down by the creek. It's a good part the, of the world there. Oh my yeah. god! It's so stunning. And then so I've been taking them there as often as I can. And then one one day last week I was there with Kath, and uh, we're walking along and. And we're at, um, you know, the Studley Park boathouse. Yeah. Um, and then I was trying to work out where we were. Like, we'll go back there because then and she goes, no, 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 that's that's at the Fairfield boathouse. And I went, what? And she goes, no, that's the Fairfield boathouse. This is the Studley Park. And I'm like, no, I was at I was at the boathouse last week. It looks, what? And she goes, there's two boathouses. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> And I <laughs> lost my mind. I could not walk. I could not talk. And she goes, "What's?" I'm like, "What do you mean? <laughs> what? What are you on about?" She goes, "There's two." I'm like, "Are you? What? Like I've been living in Melbourne for a and long have time. Have you been going? What did you think it was? Have you been going to both boat well, houses? Did you just think it was the same. And thinking it was the names. same one each time. Yeah. <laughs> yes." Because they, they look do, the same. They do look really similar. You're right, though, they do. And I think I've probably made that mistake in my head before, thought I was at one or at the other. That is insane, though. I didn't even though. know that there was two. <laughs> <laughs> There's two boathouses. Why would you make them look exactly the same? Why one, do that? One boathouse looks pretty much the same as another, though, doesn't it? Isn't no, it? but even the setup, like it's up on the yeah. hill, and you know, and it's, it's like an amphitheater thing. Is there an amphitheater at one of those? Oh, maybe or I don't maybe. know. I just didn't know that there was two, and it really freaked me out. Uh, we were talking about this before, and it is the same as yes, like when you go to uh, say the first time it, you realize that Northcote Plaza has two coals. Coals, yeah. <laughs> like that was that actually was a mind blowing moment in my life. Someone goes to me, my friend who lives in there, she goes, "Oh, I actually go around to that other coals there, and I park, I park on near the other coals," and I went, "What?" And she goes, you know, the, the good coals. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, yeah, the, the other coals, the good coals. You go to the good coals where you park. And I'm like, I don't know what you are talking about and why do you keep calling the coals the good coals? There's only one coals. She's like, no, no, there's two. Yeah, I had no I idea. I can imagine that whole plaza being full of stone teenagers just freaking out. Oh, my God, man, there's two coals. Yeah. Where am I? Where am I? It's actually a lot of elderly people shuffling about uh, in that particular <laughs> plaza. Again, shuffling from one to the other. I thought I'd, thought I'd been to coals. No, I thought I'd been to coals. I used to live near that coals. It's where, well, both those coals. It's where I would do my regular shop. Uh, and but it was great because if I didn't find what I was looking for in one Coles, like a particular brand of Maggie Beer's ice cream, then I would go to the other Coles could to you, find out. Could you um, play them off against each other? No, so no. it's cheaper over there. Uh, hey, Ooh. someone's calling through. Should we see the calling through about this, or have they just was they might be fun? resubscribing? Right. I don't know. Who knows? Let's just try. Hello, you're on Triple R. Those boathouses are on a different side of the river. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know that. I know that now. But if you didn't know that there was two different ones and you have a really bad sense of direction. Jez has said before she has a terrible, terrible sense of direction. I'm, just, I'm lucky to find a boathouse in the first place. <laughs> like who knows what side of the river I'm on at any time of the day. 
<laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> yeah, oh, and the side of the river's disoriented because you can be turned around the other direction. Yeah, I could the be. The side of the river changes. I find like that, if you're coming in from different directions. I find that whole Yarra Bend area. I often walk through there with a friend, and we discovered a whole new bridge and path recently that I never knew was there. It's very confusing, and I there is moments where I go, "What side am I on?" I don't know. Yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. Which is why you know why I love it so much because you know every I've been there so many times now in the last week. And it just like it, it's a different path every day. Like yeah. I just go, oh guys, let's go. Or let's maybe go it's actually way. just the same path. Yeah. You haven't realised. Our <laughs> <laughs> next guest is a woman of many talents: actress, fashion designer, author, singer, songwriter, and most importantly to me, a pioneer to women comedians because she's one of the greatest around. She's currently on tour with her show, The Psycho Show. It's Margaret Cho. Hi. 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 I'm holding Harriet. Yes, that's my little puppy, Harry. I love uh, this, this baby. I know. I love her too. And she loves a cuddle. Yeah. Look at that. Look how happy she is. She's so sweet. <laughs> I wish they had, um, so I'm here uh, from Los Angeles and I don't have my dogs here. I wish they had dog prostitutes. <laughs> don't you wish they had or you could hire them for the night you could get one that looks like your dog or someone who looks different oh right dogs for hire so you can yeah. just yeah hang out with them like a, a dog day. prostitute have like a dog <laughs> girlfriend experience yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dog friend experience yeah you overnight. can hang out with harriet for, for a while so that's cool cute. She's, she's very soft isn't she yeah we we bath her anyway let, let's get on Here's the question. Like, you're known for tackling big issues in your stand-up. Mm-hmm. Can we expect the same from this show? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's a, this show is very feminist. It's very queer. It's very um, about using anger as a cathartic tool. But it's hard to be angry when you're holding a hair at a dog. <laughs> I'm trying not to shock her. I wish we could show people Harry's face too because she's just she's gone into out. some kind of coma. Yeah, she's yeah, so yeah. cute. She's really warm. This is your first time in Australia? No, no. I've been here a few times okay. and I've toured the country and I really, I love it. It's it's so exciting. So it's just a very different place but also very familiar in a way too. Uh, so. do, do you, um, does the humour translate well across borders or do you yes. have to sort of revamp the show every time you go to a different country? Well, you want to revamp it. But also, I think it does, it travels well. I think it's good. It's, it's definitely, I mean, I, th- I feel like a citizen of the world now. So I kind of go everywhere and do shows everywhere. Uh, one of your earlier shows um, was one of the first I watched, uh, The Notorious Cho. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember watching it with another friend of mine, Janelle Kerning, who is a Eurasian herself and does stand-up comedy. Mm. Um, and we were watching it in her lounge room and there's a bit at the start of the show where you're standing side stage about to go on and you can hear the roar of the crowd and you stand there and you get handed the mic and it's like this, you take a deep, big deep breath and then walk out. <laughs> and it was the moment where we looked at each other. It was both, you know, quite fresh to stand up, you know, a couple of years in and we looked at each other and just went, oh, mate, can you imagine what that would be like? Um 
was it a rush and do you still get that rush before oh, you go yes. on stage oh yeah it's it's very exciting you know you because you kind of you take that moment before and you know it's like we get like nerves or whatever mm. and and it doesn't matter if it's um a, a tiny comedy show or a very very big uh kind of arena show you you still have that that one breath before and you go okay <laughs> i'm gonna breathe again but <laughs> but not for a while <laughs> And so here we go, and then it's always very exciting. You know, it's it's a very it's it's a real adrenaline rush. Like comedy, it's sort of like um, I don't know, maybe it's a it's like a, a uh, something um, kind of like skydiving because you go in and you're sort of in this free fall mm. with people, and and to get a a physical reaction from them, this laughter that kind of comes out. It's, it's all very like, it's like yoga in a way, but more scary. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yoga. I haven't done yoga. Yeah. It's a very, you get a, get a rush from it. Yeah. Oh, the first time I saw you, a performance of yours, I was like, what the, what the F is this woman doing? Like, who is this woman? What is she doing? Like, I found it so shocking and amazing and wonderful. Do you still find it hard now that you've kind of been doing it a while and there's kind of a lot of comedians who have come along and emulated, I suppose, your style? Do you find it hard to still shock people? Are you still trying to go, I want to, like, get oh, that? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah, it's good. To, well, it's good because um, I think people are still shockable. People are still conservative. You know, when they, they sort of expect different things from women and they don't allow women to speak and observe about certain a certain things in a way in their mind. So you kind of uh, approach those biases in a, in a very weird, weird way. It's very invisible, but it, you have to stop breaking through, you know, people's expectations of women and people of color and queer. It's a very, it's, it's always uh, surprises me how conservative people are inside really. Mm. In the US, what do you think the most sh- shocking thing you've said on stage is that has kind of garnered the most wall reaction? Oh, it, just talking about sexual abuse and talking about rape, but people get very upset, like yeah. very freaked out and very much like, you can't talk about this. But to me, it, I think it's really important to talk about because um, predators survive in the shadows of society and so when you can bring a um sort of bright light to it which comedy really is they they have nowhere to hide so i feel like people should be talking about these experiences so you've been a pioneering figure in the in in comedy what is the state of the u.s comedy scene now is it still dominated by guys telling dick jokes or is it- <laughs> there's a lot of women there's a lot of women out there there's a lot of um different kinds of comedy happening i feel like the the um advent of social media has really changed comedy and and sort of made it um, more possible for different voices to emerge and um, also people are uh i don't know i think they're more willing to listen to women's voices listen to queer voices it's it's gotten a lot more um exciting and really it's a thrilling time in Mm. comedy like when you were growing up the only Asians you would see on TV were on MASH. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something, um, you know, what type of effect do you think that had on you and how important do you think diversity is in pop culture nowadays? It's very important and it's it's really, um, it, it's weird to uh, go through that and try to be an entertainer, you know, that, that Asians were very much um, an invisible kind of silent minority in television and in comedy, of course. And so it just became a very um, strange thing to set, sort of empower yourself with a voice when you, you feel invisible. And, and and that sort of feeling of invisibility is very hard to put into words because that's it, it, it is um, something that you have to kind of break through. So it's weird. 
Mm. I read um, somewhere that when you were on the TV show All American Girl, you were told to follow the advice of a coach who would teach you to become more Asian. Yeah. That's really happened. <laughs> what? What's, yes. What did it actually involve? Oh, they had a team of people from um, the uh, University of UCLA coming and trying to help us, these Asian Americans who were there. And um, it was more that uh, there was this idea that we had to achieve some kind of authenticity when really that that in itself is kind of a racist expectation, you know, because you don't expect that from other shows. You don't have to have somebody there to monitor your authenticity, but we sort of had that. It was weird. It was very weird. Mm. Uh, You uh, do many other things. You're a very talented actor as well. Thank you. Which, if you had to choose between acting and comedy... Mm-hmm. Oh, I love stand-up comedy. I mean, it's what I will always do. It's what I am as an artist. And then everything else um, I, I, I do, you know, joyfully, but it, it's not the same. Like, stand-up comedy is mainly, like, it, it's it's just my art form. It's what I'll always do. It's sort of what everything goes, filters through. So it's it's my life. Uh, uh, it's a weird time at the moment. I'm sure as an American traveling abroad, you get asked about this Inevitably, but I suppose we have to ask it. What is your take on the strangeness of the US uh, presidential election? What do you think oh, is going to happen and what effect? It's so embarrassing. It's really <laughs> embarrassing. I don't even think there's an Australian equivalent to uh, what is happening now in America. I I really don't think that Donald Trump will become president. He, he can't even, like, blend his, like eye makeup concealer down into the rest of his orange makeup. So I, I don't know how he could be like the leader of the free world if he can't even do that. So I don't know. I feel like we've just been um, brainwashed by reality television. We sort of think everything's a wrestling match. I don't really get it, but there's a lot of people who are very, very convinced that he should be president. And I, I, I don't know how that could possibly happen. You Does know, that scare you? Yes, it's really <laughs> scary. But then also, like, if you think about politics um really like art really emerges under a very uh, difficult regime like if you look at ronald reagan you know we we saw punk rock happen during that um we saw um the nea4 you know very very subversive artists come to the foray because uh the more um conservative a government is uh the 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 more exciting the rock and roll is like you saw that with um Margaret Thatcher and, and the Sex Pistols, the same kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's better. I don't want to. I, I don't want to say that it would be good at all. It would not be. You're good. just trying to find a silver lining. It's got to be something because I can't. It would be so embarrassing if he was president. I don't. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> we might we might get a few good songs out of it. Yeah. Uh, you were talking before about um, talking about uh, rape and sexual abuse on stage. Do you have a reputation for tackling quite difficult and personal material? Does it take a toll on you? I mean, do it you- does. Well, it does. It's very um, – but it, it's very important to uh, break through that and to, to get onto um, – a place where people are accepting of women talking about these issues um, and talking about uh, their suffering in a way that empowers other survivors and also lo- looks to a future where we can eradicate this. I think there's if you if you talk about it and talk about it, there's a way that we can get rid of it. I think it's really important. Do you think when in, in talking about that? Sorry, do you do it? Um, as a starting point, is it something that you do to empower other survivors mm-hmm. or is it something that you just feel the need to do 
like regardless of what people think and that you know the end result is it being empowering like what comes first for you I think for me it's my own healing you know having endured this um, numerous times in my life and then looking for a way to talk about it you know I've written about it in my books but to go because um, stand up comedy you really have to be this heroic figure and so when you disclose things like that that have happened people get very upset and, and, and you have to work through that and for me it's the challenge of um, being able to go somewhere that other comics haven't been able to go. Mm. The gig is on at the Athenaeum Theatre on the 12th of September. We've been talking to Margaret Cho. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been lovely having you. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.